Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My guest today is Rudy Appels. He's an honorary professor at the University of Melbourne as a research fellow at AgriBio uh, that comes out of La Trobe University. He focuses on the wheat genome. You know, I, I guess the wheat genome is vastly more complicated and it has a lot more base pairs than the human genome, which is... It's kind of strange, but uh, we'll get into that. And uh, Rudy, welcome. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. And uh, as I said, it's a pleasure to be able to talk about my some of my work with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, wheat, I guess, is uh, you know, is very important because so many uh, it's harvested, you know, all over the world. I guess, especially in the United States, so um, it's very popular. But uh, I didn't realize this genome is so complicated. So, what? How did you first get interested in wheat and its genome and uh, yeah, we'll go into that. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the wheat genome. There's like most of us have got pairs of chromosomes, and that's called one. Like we've got the the pairs of chromosomes in our human cells, and that's sort of a genome's worth. Um, the wheat genome has three sets of genomes, so that makes it really complicated. And we'll get into that a bit later. So we have the A, B, and D genomes. So I got into wheat. Um, long time ago now i'm a biochemist and chemist by training and my natural inclination inclination is to visualize molecules and what they do and uh, how i got into wheat uh, initially it's a bit tricky going back 50 years to try and see what i did well and what i thoroughly messed up but i think the, the the sort of key part for me was when jim peacock in csiro canberra um gave me the opportunity to work on wheat. Um, I was a research scientist there in 1977. And it was a real, this is where I want to be type of um, period for me in my research. Um, although this is way before the technical and computer capacity we have today, um, I still managed to isolate classes of uh, DNA sequences that were able to specifically track rye chromosome segments uh, into wheat. And this is like something that really turned me on. It was like cloning way before uh, the days of cloning. What does that mean? You were able to track rye sequences in wheat. Does that mean that rye was a progenitor of wheat and you could see the breeding or? (laughs) No, no, no. This is really interesting, uh, Richard. In the, um, in the 1930s, people were doing crossing between rye and wheat, which was really hard to do. It's not, doesn't happen all the time but they pushed it and they made a new crop called triticale which was uh, really interesting and and 50 years ago was being pushed as the new cereal for um, consumption and biscuits particularly in Canada so triticale had the rye chromosomes plus the wheat chromosomes so it was a it was a real thing and so when you then back cross wheat with triticale you get bits and pieces of rye and it's basically like cloning, it's, uh, but you're cloning big segments. 
Yeah, so that's, um, and it, it just fired me up to be able to look at something specific, uh, like a rye segment in this case. Um, well, what would be the benefit of crossing wheat and rye? What properties were people trying to breed into it? Yeah, so yield, uh, large grain, the, the, the triticale has a very large grain, um, new disease resistance, um, and there was some sort of, it it's just tastes different as well. So it, it's never really taken off as a, as a, a new cereal, but it was, um, it, it came pretty close. It, it just, I'm, I'm not exactly sure why it never really got people's imagination, but the, um, yeah, there were sort of the big advantages were for the growers, um, that they had, um, improved more stable yield, uh, which probably may have been where that fell down a bit later. And then also the taste, which was the, the very nutty sort of taste, is, um, which is pretty good in, in the sort of biscuit type material that, um, that the uh, Canadians were producing. Yeah, so it's the two aspects were of interest. And I think with wheat, uh, Richard, it's sort of really interesting how it's such an ancient uh, crop, but it's it's been used for um, crossing everything to it. <laughs> and I guess rye was one of them. And then you have all these other wild relatives of wheat that get crossed into it for, for different traits. It's, it's usually disease resistance. Okay. Well, the wheat that's grown nowadays, is it very self-similar or only, you know, is only one variety used or, you know, to make it more robust against <laughs> disease? If you look at a given field, are there many yeah. different types of wheat or is there too much of a trade-off with uh, having different types in the field yeah so in in if you look at one field it's pretty much a uniform uh, crop like it's it's what they call a monoculture uh, but worldwide there's a really widespread varieties of wheat and in different continents they have different sort of what we call alien chromosome segments, the bits of crosses that were done by breeding to introduce resistance. And so that's given a lot of variety, uh, uh, variation in the wheat varieties, which uh, are then grown and they adapt to different environments. It's, I mean, even in the, in the North American continent, you have um, the wheat grows in the really cold climates of Saskatchewan. And then, it, but it also does well in the Midwest so you know it it really has adapted, and that means you've needed to have different genetic material in inside the wheat so um the wheat genome, how many base pairs does it have i've heard it's uh, just like a huge yeah. genome, and does it have chromosome pairs or it has like uh quadruplets yeah. i mean what what's unique about it yeah, so it's got sixteen we estimate now with the sequence it's got sixteen gigabases, so that's sixteen million million uh, 16,000 million uh, bases um, the the human genome has got about five uh, gigabases so it's it's uh, complex and the, the bread wheat as we normally have it <clears throat> has got this this what I mentioned briefly before the a B and D genomes so these are the sort of reflections of the, the progenitors, the way the wheat evolved from from diploid, like when there was just there were just seven pairs of chromosomes, and then one set of seven pairs of chromosome combined with another uh, variety, another wheat line way back, and it formed like um, two sets of seven pairs, and then finally about ten thousand years ago, the uh, just in the Caspian Sea area in the in Iran. Uh, there was a third set of seven uh, 
chromosomes were added. So all up, there are 21 pairs of chromosomes, but they're sort of in these sets of three, the A, B, and D genomes. And so in the 10,000 years uh, since some farmer would have been looking through his fields and he found this really interesting large grain uh, in his field of normal sort of what we call pasta wheats, the A, B genome wheats. And this was then the first A, A, B, B, D, D, the three sets of uh, chromosomes. And then they must have, somebody must have been really observant 10,000 years ago and kept the grain, nursed it along. And, and finally it became the bread wheat, which um, is really, it's fantastic because with the three sets of uh, pairs, seven chromosomes, so a total of 21 chromosomes, um, there's just a huge flexibility. It's just incredible crop. So you can, yeah, it's just very, very dynamic at the genetic level. Can you tell how, how many rounds of breeding have occurred by looking at ancient wheat to wheat nowadays and maybe even the last 100 years? <laughs> has there been a lot of changes and a lot of selective breeding or has it been relatively few? Like, you know, if you look, does anyone look at the history and, uh, and track it? Oh, yeah, very much. So this is uh, traditionally there's been a good source of argument to say well, what was the exact history of wheat. No, that's a, that's a very big area. Uh, but to, in, in the last 100 years, for example, just to answer your question, the, there's been this really big burst. I, I mentioned in the 1930s, there was this effort to cross rye with, with wheat. So similarly, all these other grasses, which normally don't cross to wheat, were forced in, in, in natural crosses, but they were still had to be nursed in the lab, um, what we call wide crosses. And this way, alien chromosomes, alien bits of chromosomes have been introduced into wheat. So if you now look at what we have in our hands, there's this incredible history of what we call alien chromatin uh, chromosome integration. And as I said, it's mainly for uh, introducing new disease resistance because that's a really never-ending battle to to grow wheat in a, such a hostile environment uh, as the world is uh, with disease um, and yeah it's that you can see that history now in the, in the genome it's an absolutely uh, amazing story that what, what we've as humans have developed in the wheat yeah what, uh, what does your work on wheat look like today what are you trying to accomplish or understand Yes. Okay. So this is um, a big question. <laughs> and I think what um, there are a couple of things that are really um, standouts, I guess. The, the, if you look back at what the DNA um, success story has been, is that like specific genes have been uh, obtained and we can see them, select them and have a diagnostic for them so that we can then do the breeding more efficiently. And that's now being pretty much adopted. And I've got some examples later if you want. Um, and I think the, um, yeah, the, so, so you, you're really asking me for, for what, what is the, the vision, I guess. Um, so the, yeah, even the, if it's multiple, multiple elements, I mean, you know, just start yeah. at one and let me know, is there, you know, again, just a, um, I mean, just break it down into pieces. It's okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so with um, so, so on the one hand, um, the, the the wheat genome, if if you like, it, it's so complex. It's a, it's a life in its own, and um, working out how the gene 
networks are expressed and cooperate with each other and are modified by the environment are really important. Um, there's a lot of very specific, so, so that's the big picture, right? The, the, the general scope of, of how genes work and, um, and, and produce a good wheat crop in a particularly hostile environment. The, the more specific thing is for areas like um, the people react badly to, um, to some of the wheat proteins, what people call it gluten insensitivity. And that's um, an area I think which is more specific where uh, I think we can, now that we know all the genes uh, involved in, in, the, in the flour proteins complement, that we can actually start to really work with people who have this and, and look at what's, what, what some of the issues are. Um, uh, in in, in um, one example, again, just as I like the specific things, um, there's a group of chemicals, the herbicides, which um, you can have resistance for. These are called imidazlinone. And I think one of my things that I did, which I'm particularly proud of, was that we discovered, um, we, we, we characterized a, a new mutation and a, it was a new gene uh, for this imidazlinone resistance, which has been adopted. So I think there are specific examples where being able to identify a mutation and then track it in a breeding program to, to then add to uh, the valuable part of what's uh, what is in agriculture and then the other side is the is the, the human health so when you say wheat is dynamic does it tend to change on its own does it you know undergo like epigenetic change or even genetic change on its own does it breed on its own or is the way it's planted uh, it just will grow and go through part of the life cycle but not you know go through a stage where it uh, crossbreeds yeah so Richard, wheat wouldn't exist without human beings and probably human beings wouldn't exist without wheat. So um, you, you can't think of wheat doing something on its own. It's all driven by uh, humans. It, it's, it's, there's a real sort of intimate relationship there that you can't separate. And so what drives the change, what drives the change in the wheat genome is when we as humans take it to environments which are, it's not normally suited to, and there may be um, some dry conditions or really cold conditions like in, in the Northern Hemisphere. So those, when wheat is what we call selected to grow there by humans, um, it then is coincident with um, the genome change that's occurred. So the, um, there's basically a lot of variation sort of sitting there and the humans come along and pick pick the winners and they may have a particular rearrangement of the, the, the DNA or there may be a deletion, which was just sort of hovering in the background. But in this particular instance of this environment, it then gets selected and it becomes the prominent feature of the, the wheat genome. So yeah, it, it's really a situation where the human selection is, is the real driver for selecting variation, which is sort of sitting in the background, I guess you could say. And it's sort of there, but then it, we select it to make it prominent. Why would uh, different types of wheat do better in different areas? Is it just, I mean, does climate have a huge effect on the different types of wheat that are planted? And if so, what are the yeah. effects? Yeah, I mean, they're huge. I mean, if you think of um, the, the frost tolerance that's required when you grow wheat in the, um, 
you plant it before the snow comes and then it sits there during winter and then in the following spring uh, it pops up and gives you a good crop um, that's an entirely different scenario if you like it needs the plant to be frost tolerant it needs um, persistence through the winter while the um, while it's sort of yeah it has to basically persist in until the next spring compared to in australia you know, you plant your crop um, and it, sort of coming up around this time of the year it, it has strong sunlight um, hopefully some rain <laughs> we don't get too much rain and then come uh, October it's, it's then harvested so it's a completely different it's um, it, it's sort of it, in Australia the plant is uh, it's planted and with the first rains that come for the season it, it goes for it it grows like mad uh, as opposed to in the snowbound countries it it's planted it sort of starts to germinate and then sits there while the snow covers it and it hibernates and then next spring. So there's this really completely different requirements for um, the plant to survive in those uh, conditions. What are some of the, uh, I mean, the surprises that you see in the wheat genome? I mean, can you tell what can be exploited from here? What can be modified from here to get certain effects? Like what, what are weed's biggest problems right now? Are there diseases that are targeting it uh, more than others? Uh, what, you know, what are some of the issues surrounding weed right now? Yes, I think um, disease is a never-ending problem. I think there's, there's no question about it. It's, it's the big issue. Um, so that's it's a huge issue. It'll never change because the pathogens, the fungi, the, the root and nematodes, the, you name it, they're sitting there wanting a free feed on the, on the wheat plant. And there's always the challenge of getting genetic resistance because the genetic resistance is is cheaper to implement than a, a chemical version and more environmentally friendly as well. So that's, that's the, uh, that's clearly a, a, a big one. I think the emerging issue that I think people are really talking about a lot are um, this environmental problem, the global warming, it's got everyone's attention. And I think what um, th there are some varieties, it's sort of a bit hard to explain this, but there because we don't understand it, but there are some varieties that seem to be able to kind of do what winter weeds do and, and hibernate. But so in Australia, there are some varieties that can sort of, when the rain is not coming, they're much better at sort of sitting there in a mini sort of hibernation to until the rains come and then they go for it. There's that sort of what we call plasticity in that growth habit. That is something which would be really cool to capture uh, if we could understand the, the, the signals that the turn off, if we could, say, turn off the crop properly so it doesn't waste resources uh, when there's no rain, in our case. And then when the rains come, it switches back on and it goes, belts and belts out a crop. So you, I think that sort of, uh, what, what, this, what is this, really mean is that getting a, a wheat crop that's engineered or selected to be more uh, in tune with environmental than the, the continually changing environmental uh, conditions that we grow it in and i think that's a it, it's a lovely for me anyway it's a it's a beautifully complex issue with with the whole plant um, genome expression being involved and there's a lot of issues so that's sort of superimposed on 
the need to be able to grow the crop in a, in a very hostile environment when it comes to disease. And, and so that's the, those, those are two layers. And then the other layer is our human consumption requirement, which is in terms of the, the, the gluten sensitivity. And so if you, and so that's, so those are the three broad areas, if you like. So um, I don't know, is there anything in the genome that you see a wheat that, uh, again, is just very strange or unusual or unique, perhaps only to wheat that holds, uh, I don't know, some, some mystery to it that, you know, really needs a lot of study to understand? Um, life is pretty uniform in terms of met- the way it works. Um, I think we do, we see a lot of things in the human genome, the very sophisticated work that's done in the human area, uh, which applies to, to wheat. And it's really just to capture that in that knowledge and see how this works in wheat. Uh, I think um, there are some very specific uh, things, but they're not unique to wheat. I think uh, there's the cereals, there's barley, maize, and, um, and a lot of those, there's a lot of common ground uh, there. I think the, the thing about wheat is it's poly, what we call polyploid nature. There are three uh, sets of genes for everything, uh, three pairs of, three sets of pairs. Uh, it's a hexaploid, which really introduces a whole new ballpark of rules of the way genes interact, which probably is not possible to look at in other in other genomes and so i think in other cereals so i think that's probably the the really unique part uh, which gives us a complexity which we really i guess keeps a lot of us wheat uh, people happy um and it, it's that flexibility it's the flexibility of that dna space which um is the is the thing that is, is unique i think um, we I've said this a few times now, but the, the amount of variation that's been selected by people, uh, by humans over the last millennia, um, it, it's really, um, it's, it's amazing. And it's, it's accelerated in the last hundred years uh, when we've had that very intensive crossing with uh, the wild relatives. Very good. So what, um, I mean, what do you think that there's going to be a breakthrough in understanding of wheat over the next year or is this really going to be a slow process and it's going to be years before there's any major changes in, in our understanding of it? Yeah, I think, uh, Richard, the, um, in, in my mind, I'm, I'm obviously biased, but I think the, the, the really big breakthrough is, um, was really, in, in a way, was characterized by a recent publication in, uh, in Nature, I think it was, that where you, it, it's become quite evident there is a suppressor a lot of things are suppressed in wheat and like in humans, um, a lot of nature is spent uh, stopping things from happening. Like if you don't stop cells from dividing and they'll run free in humans, you have a cancer. So it's that sort of ability to suppress things, which is very strong in nature generally to produce an organism. And the, the recent example that was, was done by um, like, as always a big collaboration from people across the world was to to demonstrate that this one gene on the d genome so it's one of the the genomes had a gene that actually suppressed resistance genes on the a and b genomes for a stem rust okay so this is really so the ability to resist a whole range of fungi is there 
but it's being suppressed for for whatever reason. And so when you actually then uh, mutate that gene that's causing the suppression, you get a whole new range of disease resistance. And so that's what uh, and then it's there's been that really interesting uh, development where it's part of the interaction, the, the three-dimensional interaction inside the nucleus of that D genome with uh, the A and uh, with the A and B genome. So, or the A genome actually in this case. So you had um, it's that sort of complex. You have to sort of try and it, it, for for me it's like a, a universe out there. You've got a lot of genes that are there and they're the equivalent of stars for me and they're all interacting and you can see galaxies well you have in in the inside the nucleus you have in a way um, a congregation of of the genes the stars into a bigger superstructure you can, well, i think of as a galaxy it's just a personal view uh, where they're inter interfacing each other so it's a three-dimensional interaction which we can now measure using the technologies that have been developed in the in the human area. Yeah. So, so I think what I'm just to summarise what I'm trying to say, not explaining it all that well, but the the, the new sort of area that's uh, really interesting is that sort of shaping uh, of the three dimensional structure of the nucleus that then controls the expression. And this example of the suppressor of the stem rust resistance is is one good example which involved this sort of interaction i mean just maybe just give one like, real real specific example how would the 3d structure of the genome affect its expression you know i've learned about epigenetics you know a part may be methylated and then therefore inaccessible yeah. or you know and this is in people i don't know if this goes for weeks but how yes, does so. structure govern the ability to express parts of uh, the genome Okay, so that's, I think, um, part of that, if you like, that three-dimensional thing is that it affects the way DNA is then modified. It's, um, you know, I really don't think that we really understand that properly, and I think that's a, a new area. But the, 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 the epigenetic um, changes are basically when you chemically modify, you methylate the, inside the cell, you get methylation of the DNA, and um, that can then switch off genes or, or when you demethylate, it can switch them on. And so that's, um, if, if a gene is located in an area where there's a lot of methylation, so you, it folds into what, what used to be called heterochromatin, if it folds into that, then the genes in that section will, will get more methylated, epigenetic type modification as you want to look at it. And that then controls the the expression of those genes it, it's it's a it's how a three-dimensional uh, structure can fold a set of genes that are normally active into an area of the of the nucleus that's where there's more methylation going on and that they then get switched off so that's the sort of interesting modification if you like of the of the gene activity at that sort of the level that you're asking about is the the epigenetic uh, level okay well very good. Rudy, what's, what's the best way to make this accessible to people that are listening so they can get a grasp on, you know, the nuances of wheat and mm. why it's so special, why it's so amazing? What, what do you recommend they go for a primer on what we've been talking about? Um, in, terms of, um, in terms of reading about it, is that what you're asking? Yeah, right. What's the next step for a listener that wants to know more, uh, you know, about 
wheat, the history of it, its genome, uh, the challenges it faces, et cetera? Where can they go yeah. for you know an overall view of things for a start? Yeah, I think your um, you you gave me a, a, quite a good primer. Uh, it was the or or uh, Lucian did. Um, I thought that was really good. It was a um, I'm not exactly sure where. Uh, this this came from so sorry i haven't got that at my fingertips but it was what, um, yeah so it was really um it was just a discussion uh that was it's only a one pager right it's sort of like a, a and it was a discussion on wheat genome that was released in um in in august 018 so it's a, there there are, i've been noticing there are some really good um um, primers, as you call it, which are being put out, which can give people uh, really a feel for, I guess, the excitement for what's going on um, in in wheat. And I think the, um, I mean, the, the sort of thing we take for granted uh, when we go for a holidays, we drive, we get out a map, we use Google Map, and we drive to a destination, and we know where we are. Well, it's that exact same analogy uh, for the wheat genome the the google map of the wheat genome is what we now have and we know where we're going it, it sort of lets us map things where um, any one gene is located in a particular stage of development of the wheat and uh, it gives us the chance to then start to grow wheat in, in environments that are um, really always we're battling to to get enough so what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and your specialization? How can they follow up? Yeah, um, I think when uh, yeah, I Googled myself and I think that comes up with a fairly comprehensive um, of who I am with, with publications. Um, I think the, the probably the, the simplest way is to, to look for anything with the um, International Wheat Genome Sequencing Consortium, um, that, that reference to it. Is, is probably the best way because the IWGSC um, is very active and it still has a really <clears throat> terrific director, Kelly Eversole, um, driving that. And there really are a lot of uh, communications there and sort of now. So that's really the answer to your question. I think the IWGSC has a lot of communication uh, material. Uh, and if you Google the IWGSC uh, communication, I think that would be probably the best source. Very good. Well, Rudy, thank you for coming on the podcast today. I appreciate it. Yeah, good. Okay, then. Great. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.